0: Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. And your week in IndyCar guest episode. Who do we have making you know your appearance here matches Ryan hunter rays long-standing IndyCar number? Mike Hull, managing director of Chip Ganassi Racing, appearance number twenty-eight on the good old podcast here. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. What are we doing when we get you to 50? Do I owe you a
1: watch? What do we do? Well, I don't know. That depends on, uh, you know, the value of watches is going up, Marshall. I don't think that you should probably talk about that.
0: Well, uh, I can find a plastic <laughs> uh, plastic one somewhere. Maybe if I win an arcade yeah, game. maybe a,
1: ca- a Casio.
0: Hey, there we go. I'll get you a retro one yeah, with a little calculator on it.
1: That'd be great. That'll help yeah. you on the
0: timing stand for
1: sure. Yeah, that quartz movement was... Uh, Uh, Quite the thing when it came out, wasn't
0: it? As if I know what that means. Do any of us know (laughs) what that means? I don't know, but hey, (laughs) let's say, uh, as usual, a a quick thank you and a hearty thank you to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and torontomotorsports.com. Before we get rolling here, my couple of newsy things, and we won't dive too deeply into them. I'll save that for next week's listener Q&A show. We have Paul Tracy confirming he will not be returning to the booth. No big conspiracy theory. Uh, I have read plenty of them, gone back and forth with some folks who are citing it as cancel culture and all kinds of other pure nonsense. Paul telling me in a text exchange yesterday, he and NBC were unable to come to terms on a new contract. Paul, who said he has loved returning to racing, did that last year in the SRX series, will be returning to SRX, In 2022, he's also working on returning to sports car racing as well. So where we have his booth mate, Townsend Bell, Mike, who's been competing in IMSA for the last couple of years and also in the booth, but missing some races. Paul telling me directly that he's actually pursuing two different racing series to compete in and the ability to do that and also be a consistent contributor to the booth not something he and NBC could work out. So he was not heartbroken, uh, was actually truly really fired up about what the future uh, could be for him getting back to the cockpit. So I know that there will be many fans, not all, but many fans who uh, will miss PT in the booth for sure. And as I wrote in my story yesterday, I thought his work last season, was the best I'd ever heard from him, but Uh, definitely a a polarizing change of some fans of many fans of PT who are not happy to see he won't be back others who are cheering that he won't be back. But as always, and this is something you can attest to Mike, nothing about Paul Tracy is calm and easy. It's there's always two strong sides, strong opinions being offered in relation to him, not being in uh, the booth or anything else that he does. We also saw Mike today, just now, drawing Reinbold announcing Sage Karen will be back for his umpteenth Indy 500, uh, adding Santino Ferrucci. I love that move. That kid is just a fireball of fun at the Indy 500 there. So quite happy to uh, see Santino will be with a team that tried to get uh, back on track this past may mike and in the indy 500 didn't get all the way there but i gotta believe santino will help and then there was one other thing i was going to mention that completely fell out of my head oh sato Takuma sato being confirmed at coin which you've known about for a little while so uh hey it's indycar off season and there's nothing going on no wait there's actually a whole heck of a bunch uh so why don't we do this why don't we kick off the show mike and uh Episode 28 of the Mike Hole Podcast with your uh, y- your co-host, Marshall Pruitt. Uh, that's going to begin here with, uh, why don't we go with Ignacio Gear, who says, Mike, I heard you say great things about uh, Ed Jones, Felix Rosenquist, the beginning of their careers in IndyCar. Both of them seem to have the stuff of future champions. But when it comes to Alex Pillow, did you notice right away that there was something really like, really special in him. He also says, kind regards from Argentina.
1: Well, if, uh, if we could uh, find that crystal ball um, and uh, move it back in time, it would be great every time we make a driver selection, Ignacio. The, uh, uh, there is something very special about uh, drivers uh, like Alex or Alex below himself in the first person, no question about it. His composure combined with his talent, and then combined with his route, uh, the clear direction that he took to get to IndyCar racing. To be ready to race an in IndyCar uh, should probably be examined more fully, maybe not in this conversation, but uh, certainly, Marshall, maybe you could look at that. I, I think it's uh, what he did by going from European racing, first karting, then uh, latter series racing, a bit of sports car racing, and then to Super Formula in Japan, uh, the viewers should take the time uh, or the listeners should take the time to, to understand what Super Formula really does and what it is and the complexity of the race car that they race there and the size of it and the power level of it. Uh, it's the kind of car we should probably be racing in the United States today in IndyCar racing. Um, it's a very advanced race car and a very competitive series. So when he was fortunate enough to get the opportunity to drive for Dale Coyne. He was ready to take advantage of that, and so his talent and composure was very much on display immediately. Um, So I I think, uh, Ignacio, that maybe uh, directionally uh, helps answer your question.
0: Why don't we go to a couple questions here, Mike, regarding the sale of the NASCAR team. Our pal Jeremiah Morrell says, congrats on the successful 2021 campaign uh, with our hero, Alex Pillow, winning the IndyCar title. He says, curious what, if any, impact the sale of the NASCAR operation to Trackhouse might have in the future on your IndyCar IMSA and Extreme E programs. Does this lessen the personnel burden, help? Does it, Curious if there's any uh, significant impact, you might say, that sale has had or will have.
1: Well, each organization stood on its own feet uh, first of all, uh, so we we, share, we we were a shared resource in many areas, certainly, uh, but uh, not on a daily basis uh, with personnel. Uh, so we had counterparts in both locations, and their job descriptions, I suppose would be, have been very similar to each other, uh, but indianapolis and and North Carolina. Also operated independently of each other. Um, there are a few people that have come to work for us from North Carolina, um, but for the most part, uh, uh, Indianapolis will carry on with Extreme E, uh, the IMSA Sports Car Program with Cadillac, and uh, the Honda Program with uh, IndyCars.
0: Follow-up question here from uh, at Champ Car Forever on Twitter says, with the closing of the NASCAR side, do members who stayed get reassigned to other programs? And also, do they get to choose which programs? Or is that something that uh, CGR's leadership uh, dictates based on IndyCar, IMSA, et cetera, needs for staffing?
1: That's a good question. Maybe I could get, take them in reverse. Um, depending on the skill set and and the need in Indianapolis uh, and their availability to be able to move to Indy because that was part of what's going on. Anybody in North Carolina that wanted to continue to work for us uh, was asked uh, with a bit of uh, help certainly and and time uh, to move themselves and their families if that was the case to come to Indy and work in the Indianapolis building. Uh, We've had a few people uh, take us up on that opportunity and uh, uh, we've got plenty of work here. So uh, uh, it's, it's helped us in certain areas, certainly. Um, and cross-sectionally, uh, uh, we're very similar in both locations. So they, they just step right into the role and carry on.
0: You know, stick with this for just a sec, Mike. So IndyCar took a throwaway suggestion I made a more than a year ago about, hey, you guys – as a series maybe need to be the, the rallying point for folks who want to work in the series, some sort of uh online mm-hmm. job resource, which they've done, which is awesome. You no, know, Jay Fry said there are more than 400 applications that came through within the first couple of weeks. Is that a resource you've used at all, Mike? And how do they make that available to you? If you're looking for a truck driver, not that you need one, you have awesome ones, but you know, whatever it might be. Uh, is that a resource you've looked into yet? Uh, or, or have they pres- made it easy for you all to uh, take a gander and see what folks are submitting?
1: We have looked at it, yes. Uh, that's the short answer. Uh, the needs for all teams uh, are certainly within the sphere of those 400 applications that uh, Jay referenced. I certainly cannot explain, it, maybe it's like an eclipse. I I can't explain why it's so difficult in the United States uh, presently to find hireable people. Uh, Every store that you would walk into or um, putting gas in your car and and seeing a sign on the window there or uh, going to uh, your favorite fast food restaurant whatever that might be, or Starbucks, if that's it, you know, there's signs in all the windows. You can come to work here for $15 an hour. We need people. And even like Starbucks, I went there the other day, and now there's three days a week where they're not open after 1 p.m. in the afternoon because they don't have enough people to work there or they don't have enough product because it's not being delivered. So racing is no different. Uh, We're starving for uh, trainable people, not necessarily experienced people just trainable people that could be mentored in our system. Um, so those 400 applications, uh, are important to the vitality of IndyCar racing.
0: Maybe I need to submit my application. I don't know if I'm trainable. (laughs) I, I mean, I'm like an old dog with way too many bad habits, but, uh, yeah, Hey, I'll take 15 bucks an hour turning wrenches or I don't know, scrubbing brake discs or something. I'm sure you can find a use for me somewhere. um, Why don't we go back in time a little bit, Mike, celebrate one of our favorite topics. Uh, Luis Felipe Rojas Calderon says, Mike, um, many questions for the great master here. Uh, What was the toughest moment of the year, uh, would you say, between Alex and Pato uh, in their battle for the championship? And then uh, he's definitely also wanting to know a little bit going back in time. If you have uh, one of your favorite Zanardi moments, to share from uh, Chip Ganassi Racing. And I know whenever you join us, you get asked to comment on favorite Alex Zanardi memories or Montoya memories. So um, what are your thoughts about how uh, how fierce the Polo versus Pato thing got? And then also any uh, any other Zanardi memories that you might be able to share? Uh,
1: uh, well, in, in terms of uh, racing for a championship, there's a fine line between being adversarial, and being uh, uh, productive. <laughs> um, and uh, and I think that that's maybe what we work ex- over the years, that's what we've we worked extremely hard to do. Um, Pillow had uh, a lot of internal resource to help him, uh, which is probably, to answer the question, is probably what we worked on more than worrying about who we were racing against at the end for the championship. You had Jimmy Johnson, who had won his fair share of championships in NASCAR and knew what it meant to keep yourself mentally in the game as a mentor. Uh, we had Scott Dixon and Marcus Ericsson who know how to, how to race IndyCars successfully. And both were a big help. And then Dario Franchetti who equally helped in terms of uh, being ready to race, particularly the last third of the year where when it's crunch time. so. I think maybe we didn't really think too much about the competition. We, we thought more about not creating uh, competition for ourselves uh, with, with the situation. Um, and that comes from having done it. Uh, Pato, on the other hand, had to learn, very, very talented guy, let's face it. Uh, he has a terrific future. Um, is going to do great things in IndyCar racing. Um, And he'll be even more difficult to race against next year because he's now gone through that working to win a championship process. Uh, He already knows how to win uh, and he knows how to gather people around him to do it, and he's got a great nucleus of people over there uh, to achieve uh, IndyCar greatness. Um, So I think really that's what it's all about. Organizationally, you work really, really hard to mentor each other <clears throat> through experience to get through the process, and I think that's what we saw on each on each side of the of the net there with those with those two race drivers. Hopefully, we're in that position again.
0: Yeah, you've, you've, uh, and
1: hopefully, we're in that position again with Pato.
0: Yeah, you throw in a Colton Herta. Hopefully, yeah. Renus VK has a uh, a good. Uh, season with Carpenter and a couple other young pups, and yeah, we're heading into uh, increasingly rich territory with next generation stars. Uh, hopefully, building something really amazing yeah. for us to follow from year to year.
1: Uh, IndyCar is an exciting place to be today because of that. Uh, not that it always hasn't been has, has has not that it hasn't always been that way, but uh, there's just a, a lot of aggressive young controlled talent um and uh uh driving an indie car successfully uh is not easy these days because the formula has gotten to be so strict and specified as to what you can and cannot do so uh it, it's more about an open mindset than a closed mindset when it comes to understanding how to successfully drive a an indy car in a for the most part, a two-hour race. Um, so that's really what's, what's fun about this thing is, you know, you have to get it right, and then somebody else is going to get it right, and you're going to have to match up. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, that matchup at the end of the year was a lot of fun. Any
0: uh, any thoughts on Zanardi oh, maybe man, I, from the uh, the early, like I know you've told many, you know, race stories and whatnot over the years.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I'm I don't curious, know. Maybe from his, his first test, anything jump out yeah, from no, his first test to I was share. just thinking about that uh, the other day. Somebody said something. I'm, I'm really good at uh, being reminded. About no, I'm really good at being when asked the question, I forget about all these things. <laughs> uh, so, I don't think I'd ever be able to really be very good at writing a book because I can't remember a darn thing uh, when it comes to individual things. But, and I don't know if I've told the story or not, so if I had, you can stop me, Marshall. The right. go for it. Uh, w- Alex was, was uh, uh, came to do a driver test with us at Homestead, and we chose Homestead at the time because. We had the road track and the oval and it was a driver compare between jeff krasnoff and alex Zanardi. so jeff was flying from japan and he was a day behind alex in arrival so the first evening we went to eat dinner with alex and there was myself chip tom anderson and uh, morris dunn Morris being the engineer, Tom, the general manager, myself, the competition manager, and certainly Chip, the owner. And uh, we went to this French restaurant in Homestead that was a terrific place in this old little restored house. And Morris used to call the place, he used to call the place the best place in town uh, because he enjoyed it the most. So, um, and he didn't want to go to the, whatever that place was called, the Mariner or whatever it is down there. Yeah. So we sit down to dinner. And right from the very beginning, the is massively engaging and, uh, uh, and entertaining. Uh, so the check comes. And I think Chip picked up the check and we left. And I'm riding back to the hotel with Morris in the rental car. We shared a lot of places. We went Morris and I, should, we, we went everywhere together. So we're in this rental car going back to the Best Western Hotel, which was brand new at the time. The best western and, uh, right no no western, no dollars yeah, spared. Gate, gateway gateway to the keys best western so uh, uh morris says you know mike i don't really like my first choice has never been an italian race driver <laughs> and i said well, why is that morris And he said oh they're just too emotional but you know he's kind of from the side of italy where they're less emotional he might be okay we'll find out when he drives the car i said okay great so um he said but here's the best thing i said what's that he said you always want to hire a driver who has alligator arms (laughs) i said what do you mean you want to hire a driver that has alligator arms he said you notice when the check came out his hands went back toward his sides because his <laughs> elbows were even going further back into his chair. <laughs> that is the guy we want to hire to drive our car. <laughs> Hungry. I said yes. so we don't have to test him. I said we can save a lot of money more. So if we just don't go to the racetrack tomorrow, oh, you
0: know, <laughs> and the formula was applied uh, again. You yeah. got the uh, Francini. So yeah,
1: and at that dinner, uh, Chip said to Zanardi, he said. Uh, alessandro he said i really like that name he said but if you're going to race in the united states you're going to have to become alex Wow! (laughs) for the american audience and he said it'll it'll work out don't worry about it and uh, uh i probably can't tell the story that that alex told next about uh uh, maybe this will be in the book later on, but uh, I can't really tell the story as to why Alex said that he would be more than happy to change his name to to from Alessandro to Alex. But uh, uh, that conversation that did that did start the name change. Wow. Uh, yeah. So it was. Uh, we had a great time at the very beginning and uh, just kind of catapulted from there.
0: Well, uh, I always love that story. So it, it never never loses. It's fun. Why don't we move to Craig Johnson? This is something you and I have discussed in an article I have yet to put together, uh, but I will hear shortly. Uh, Craig says, Mike, while we wait for the finalization of the new chassis and powertrain, etc., what is the one thing you'd really love to see included on a new IndyCar chassis? Uh, and is there anything you hope they stay away from, like, say, DRS that they use in Formula One? <laughs>
1: Uh, I, I think that IndyCar, uh, they, they try to keep it as simple as they can. The car's gained a lot of weight uh, over the years uh, for good reason, good measure. It's tried to uh, increase the, safe, the the safety aspect of the race car. So most of the weight that's been added is, have been all safety items, whether they be panels, wind, uh, aero screens, um uh, deformable structure and so on um and that's a good thing uh the car is way overdue to due to be changed and I mean, we, we can get in that discussion and uh uh depending on which which side of the net you're you're paddling uh you'll have an opinion about what the car should be but uh, weight reduction to me is the key we need to start again with a car that weighs well under 1500 pounds that has well over 700 horsepower. And uh, it, it demonstrates sheer speed. Uh, because that's to me what, what open wheel racing should be about. Um, so hopefully we're coming to the end of uh, the current formula <laughs> in our lifetime here and uh, our racing lifetime. And, uh, uh, I, and I would say that's where we need to start. And then the technical aspect of the car should, should uh, represent the current technology that's available to, uh, control the race car, uh, whatever it happens to be called. Um, uh, but, uh, the electronic and hydraulic control of the car should be, uh, enhanced over what we have now.
0: Cannot, cannot argue. You know, another thing that we talk about Mike a little bit is uh, looking at the, the expanding grid, full-time grid we don't have the exact number but i know that we wouldn't be surprised if we are staring at between 26 and 28 full-time cars next season know that uh talking about the details of the leader circle uh program not really something that uh folks are able to do but i am curious have an interesting scenario for those who don't know about the leader circle, what it is or why it came about. I mean, there's a couple of reasons for why it came to life. But one of those things was smaller teams uh, saying, hey, we're never able to get meaningful amounts of prize money. The bigger teams finish in the best positions and they gobble up the majority of it at every event. And this is back in the day. Uh, when meaningful prize money was paid out. And so there was a bit of a uh, socialized approach taken to this. Okay, well, fair point. How are the smaller teams ever going to get better if they're always getting the smallest slice of prize money? Let's go ahead and say, okay, how many cars do we have? We'll average out what we pay out over the year, Indy 500 being the one exception. Everybody, if you sign up for a full season of IndyCar you'll get round numbers, you'll get a million dollars. So there's still small amounts of prize money being paid out at each race, but nonetheless, taking a let's divvy up the pie equally, so biggest teams to smallest teams, you get that million dollars a year. We've now kind of taken away the worry of uh, there being a have and have-nots scenario when it comes to earning prize money. Got it. Pretty, I would say the entire field that signed up for the full season was covered by that for years and years and years. Getting to a place, though, Mike, where, I mean, what was it? I believe 22, the, uh, those who finished in the top 22 in the entrance uh, championship received leader circle contracts for the 2022 season. There's one team there in Dreddy Autosport that's been given a grandfathered fourth. Teams are limited to three uh, leader circles per, uh, per team. Um, But we could be getting to a place, Mike, and this isn't uh, asking you to criticize, say anything positive or negative. I just would love to get your thoughts. We could be in a weird place where we have a significant number of full-time entries, some of them new, some of them continuing. We could be anywhere from four to six cars over that 22-liter circle um, contract uh, construct all of a sudden, in theory, we could have this leader circle program created to reduce the dynamic of have and have-nots, still producing a have and have-not scenario where those who spend the same good money as everyone else to compete for a full season, finish 23rd, 25th, 27th, and don't get a contract. I don't know about you, but that does seem a little bit weird uh, to indeed try and make things socially equitable equal slices of the pie, but Oh, Hey, not you. Um, and now possibly a significant number of entries that will be on the outside looking in, not being part of this, uh, share and let's all be equal mindset. Is that weird or is that just life or, or what is that?
1: (laughs) Uh, well, that's certainly an open-ended question, Marshall. The, um you know the the cavalier answer is is it's a good problem to have uh the reality though is that uh uh if an when when the leaders when Brian Barnhart and Tony George conceived of the leader circle there was a reason they did it uh Everybody had come a lot of people had come away from the card franchise system and Tony didn't want to have a franchise system again He didn't want to have an owner's organization that had strength and voting power But yet at the same time he wanted to have a full field of card and so They took away or no took away is the wrong word they utilized the, the, the purse money that had been paid which was a substantial amount of money per race in the, t- in the IRL days Yeah, into an, o- into, uh, uh, an allowance for teams. If they race the entire season at the time, uh, uh, to be divided equally with a small amount of purse money.
0: I'll just mention here quickly, Mike, when I was working in IndyCar, uh, was the assistant team manager, uh, assistant engineer, assistant, a lot of things at one IRL team, for example, uh, we didn't have much money. Okay. We were, we were running on fumes. This was the Ray Thomas net motorsports general racing team. We truly were one of the poorest teams in the paddock. And so my annual salary was tiny. Uh, like for the jobs that I did, I, I think I was getting paid like less than 50 grand and i know for some 50 grand a year is a meaningful map just saying for someone basically uh running an indycar team doing engineering doing a lot of other stuff i think it was like 40 grand a year maybe mike it wasn't it was a small number the prize money in this pre-leader circle era was the one thing that myself and other crew members actually had to rely upon to get to a, a decent salary and so whatever our percentage was that we negotiated in our respective contracts, because there was quote real prize money offered, we had these relatively modest call it salary deals, but the prize money payout coming from the series backfilled, uh, what we weren't able to earn, uh, on a regular salary. So I could, I, have always felt for those modern mechanics and whomevers who, if they don't have a, a great salary deal, I sure as heck know they aren't earning a ton off of prize money.
1: Yeah. Um, The the, the upside today uh, in regards to that is a good portion of the the IndyCar race teams now are permanent 12-month-a-year businesses that uh, uh, cover capitalization as well as uh, the cost of doing business. And, and part of that is real wage. That's pretty much, it's guaranteed if you want to s- stay working for a team now, as opposed to the way it used to be where you, uh, you worked as a race mechanic for nine months and surfed for three months. Yeah. So uh, um, that's changed quite a bit. And that's, that's helped because of the stability now of IndyCar racing, it's much more stable than it was in those, in those years. And even when, they, they rolled out the uh, leader circle program. Uh, it's a much more stable economic environment to work in today than what it once was. Um, to, to go back to the question that you originally referenced, uh, the reality now is we have more than 20 strong cars that are part of the annual uh, owner's organization. Um, and uh, The series is growing and it's growing in the right direction with quality entrants that are adding cars. Yeah. Whether they be brand new teams or they be teams that are adding entries, either one, they're expanding their business model. They're professionally managed and run, and they're financially, uh, 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 they have financial foundation. They have real employees, they're adding employees, they're adding professional race drivers, they're adding vocationally people in all areas to help them run their their organization and they have terrific partners. Um, There needs to be some kind of equitable arrangement for the teams that choose to race for the full season, not pick and choose the races. I don't think it's fair for people who run an entire season, uh, to have people that choose just to race Long Beach, Portland, the Indy 500, uh, Iowa, and call it a day and be treated equally. I think if you make the commitment to race full season, then there needs to be consideration given to those additional teams uh, or all of those teams. However you do that, whether you increase the prize money whether you include more people in the seasonal, the, the full season money, whatever you do, the, the, the most positive part of the whole situation today is that we have uh, an IndyCar series that is owned by a very professional businessman. <laughs> he knows how to run a business. And I think he'll study the situation, and he will work to make that make it fair and equitable for everybody that races full season. Uh, will it happen this year? I can't answer that question, and I'm not privy uh, by saying that, and I'm not lead, not trying to create some leading answer there. It's just that I think that he'll study the situation, and he and his people will, will do what's, uh, what's right to accommodate full season entries in the series because... It's a much more healthy environment today than it's ever been, or it has been for a long time, let's say that, um, since there were two separate organizations. It's, it's growing finally in the right direction. Think about when it split, when it came back together, and what the date is today. That's a long amount of time for it to be in the growth spurt that it's finally found, and that's directly related to the fact that it's finally stabilized itself. Uh, so, uh, we'll see where it goes. Um, uh, some days we're happy about the way we're paid and some days we aren't, but, uh, guess what? We have great partners and we're going to race in 22.
0: Yeah. I guess the last thing I'd add to this, Mike, <clears throat> I'm never fond of telling folks what to do with their money. So saying, Hey Roger, <laughs> if you've committed 22 million to 22 million-dollar leader circle contracts, well, just bump it up to whatever the the full-time number is. Is it 24, 27, 28, whatever it is. Just add more millions, there you go. That's his money, the business's money. That's their determination. That would be the easy answer. But if not, how about dividing whatever the number of full-time entrants happen to be next season and in future seasons into that 22? So if the number's not going to go up, we're talking about being equitable. Hey, if uh, Bobby Rahal is expanding to a third full-time entry or name whomever is going to add more full-time cars to the grid, add to the show, etc. cetera, if uh, the ability to increase the overall uh, number to give a million-dollar commitment to each of those teams that commit with extra entries for the full season, if that's not possible, well, maybe... Uh, although the others get a a slightly smaller slice of the pie. Um, It just seems weird to me that, you know, look, I get it. If there's 23 full-time and there are 22 spots, there is some competition for that last one. Okay, great. I I see the value in that, Uh, have always enjoyed that. If we're indeed talking about like almost four, five, six, whatever extra entries, that's beyond competition. That's just way too many people. Uh, being put in the have not category in a system that's supposed to eliminate the haves and have nots so anyways uh a, a weird weird thing there let's get to uh the last couple of questions mike and then uh you're gonna go about your day i am a half hour away from root canal so woo-hoo! um <laughs> brian haywood says uh when you started working with scott dixon what was the moment where you first realized he was something special granted that taken takes in a an assumption, Brian, that Mike's ever seen anything special within Dixon. That guy's been a bit of a failure throughout his career. So, you know, it's a bit of a Hail Mary <laughs> in that question, Brian. Um, kidding aside, uh, curious, was there one moment where you're like, oh, okay, uh, we got something here.
1: <laughs> we got something here. I, I'd see that every day in Scott Dixon, frankly, still to this day. Uh, when Scott came to Drive Force in 2020, let's see, 2020,
0: 2003,
1: was, that, uh, was it? 2002. Two. He started with us in 2002. Uh, Scott drove a, a car that uh, started about mid-season, um, and uh, and then in 20 in, 2000, in uh, 2003, uh, we moved from the car Championship to the IRL Championship, and Scott became one of the two drivers we had in the series. Uh, I wasn't around. I was around Scott, but I wasn't around him like I like I. I was starting in uh, the next season, 2003. I was on his stand in 2003, so I saw him firsthand. Um, I was on Kenny Brack's stand in 2002. The very first race that we did, we were new to the IRL series. We were certainly outsiders. Um, they did treat us well, but we weren't part of the Fraternal order of the IRL at that point, the, uh, uh, we, we went to the We, we tested during the winter. Uh, we had a great winter of testing. Um, and we went to homestead and at the time, just having the ability to be able to race equally, I think with, uh, Panther racing and, and against Scott and against Sam Hornish was the goal um and uh, uh they were the high mark. i thought we thought uh, there were other teams that were equally successful in the series but we thought the way they managed their team the way they ran their team the driver they had and so on was was uh, what we needed to do and so we kind of used that as a as a benchmark for us we studied a lot of things about them whether they realized it or not how they did you know how they ran a race what they did in the pits kind of people they had and so on. And uh, so we tried to pattern ourselves a bit in that direction. So we started the race and, uh, it was a race between the two of them and we won the race. Um, and during the race, you could see what, why the question was just generated, uh, that we have here. Mm. Um, and, uh, Scott, on that given day, did the same thing that he does today. That's what's so special about having Scott drive a race car and and being up close and personal is being able to see it, um, is that he doesn't take anything for granted. He's well-prepared before the race begins. He's uh, of the mindset that he knows that he's going to have to adapt himself to the changing conditions of the racetrack. And he communicates what he needs on the next stop uh, in in, in a fashion that you can fix the car, that you can help him with the car on the stops. And uh, that was there from the very beginning with him for us. And uh, he had a great knack for, at the time, and still does for um, how to study the people that he's racing around um, and uh, uh, just be a little better at it than they are uh, for a given race distance uh, on a given day. Um, so from the very beginning, I thought it was, uh, it was a terrific opportunity. We ended up winning four short track races this year that year and won the championship. Um, and he had a terrific teammate in Thomas Schechter, who probably did never really got the true credit for how good he was on a one and a half mile oval. And that series was one and a half mile oval races in, in those days. And, uh, he continued to show Scott what Scott needed to do on a high speed oval, high, a banked high speed oval. Mm. Um, and, uh, uh, Scott has always been really, really good at being able to understand, uh, the small things that his teammates do well in order to make a difference for himself with drive style. And so he studied Thomas he studied Thomas that year. And probably by the time we got to that last race in Texas for the championship, he was in a position to win the race. And what I was impressed about, even in that race at the end of the year was he didn't push it. Uh, I think he could have won that race and it would have been a great testament to, to how far he'd come uh, in that with that category of car at that time on a, on a one and a half mile oval. But he chose to, to, to keep himself in the race, which he did, and won the championship. Uh, so every time we have an opportunity, there's an opportunity with Scott, whether it be in, uh, in my case, to be on a stand uh, for an IndyCar race, and I've been on that stand for a long time now, uh, or at a sports car race that he drives for that matter, uh, I appreciate very, very much uh, what what I've gotten to witness. Uh, I never thought in my lifetime I'd ever be lucky enough to be around a driver like this guy.
0: That's pretty cool, Mike. I mean, seriously, not not one to be super Homer here, but I've been fortunate to work with a couple of exceptional drivers, and was fortunate to be with a couple of them for a couple of years, or a few, you know, limited run. The ability to be with Scott Dixon for almost the entirety of his career, and there for the vast majority of all of his greatest uh, victories and whatnot. I mean, that's it's not something that many on the team side get to do in our sport. Obviously there are plenty of folks who've been around forever and ever and ever but rarely do they get to be paired with a single driver for so long and be there for so many of uh those those championships Indy 500 wins etc cetera, etc cetera. so that is uh that is pretty amazing let's um let me pick and choose here cuz I both have to run out the door shortly and make my wife breakfast so uh let's see where do we go here uh, Jeremy Davis, the world's biggest Scott Dixon fan. Um, and I'm not, I'm not saying that's not a, a fat joke. He's like just, you know, he's a, a person in, in great physical shape, but he, by definition, the biggest Scott Dixon fan. Says, uh, also as a Ganassi fan, how difficult, Mike? Is it, say, setting up a new car for a new track? Ex- example would be Nashville. Um, curious if simulation time? Uh, is what drives something like that to help you get to the, uh, the best starting setup with the team. Uh, he's also curious difficulties or similarities in calling IndyCar strategy versus, say, the uh, Chip Ganassi Cadillac DPI. Um, also says go get them at Daytona and in IndyCar next year. So uh, baseline setups, how does a team come up with those these days? Go into a new track and str- strategery. Calls and differences between uh, an endurance race and an Indy car race.
1: Well, that's a lot of question there. I know. The, he's uh, the biggest fan.
0: So he gets a lot of, a <laughs> lot of leeway here.
1: Well, I don't know. He's going to have to probably fight several people to, to stay on that pedestal. Yeah. The, um, uh, how do I answer that question? The,
0: uh, how's this? Yes. on Simulation. Uh,
1: uh, simulation tools for us have, have, uh, gotten better and better and better so we, we uh, unless we totally screw up the tire model which we're certainly capable of doing uh, in the simulator itself uh, the Honda simulator for us is what we use pretty much exclusively to prepare ourselves these days to go to places like Nashville whether they be new racetracks or ones that were we're frequenting we're going back to again um, it really did help us going to Nashville uh, and uh, uh, it, it helped us choose basic, uh, basic settings for the car, what we do with gearing, what we do with uh, the mechanical aspect of the race car and some arrow, certainly, and uh, allows the driver to learn the racetrack because you have a proper track map. So with the, uh, particularly in this case with Nashville being a street race, there's no way you could get on the racetrack in advance, even if you wanted to other than drive your four door sedan around there. So, um, uh, it was a big help, Jeremy, to be able to do that. Um, and and we've learned to rely on that tool more and more and more, and, and we refined it more and more with Honda's help there. And all the all the Honda teams participate in that uh, equally in terms of the share, the timeshare. Um, so uh, it's a good thing. Um, what was the next part of that question, Marshall?
0: I was curious about differences in calling strategy ah, for an endurance yeah, race sure. versus an IndyCar
1: race? Not as much as what you might think. Um, because race race strategy is all about the utilization, creation, trying to create track position that includes open track position so you can get the most out of your car in a given run. Uh, so maybe if, if you do it right and, and you hit it right, you um, you you might find open track position where you can get utilized, get the most out of it for maybe 20% of your run, whatever your run happens to be defined as. Um, So if it's 20 laps, you know, 20% of it is not a lot, but that 20%, if you can go flat out and gain some position, you then put yourself in a position both on your in- and out lap to make up a bit more time. Uh, Sports car racing has changed so much. It's no longer... The word endurance is probably the wrong word these days, even though it's an endurance for us to sit on a timing stand for twenty-four hours. Uh, but uh, um, it's more about sprint racing now for twenty-four hours. Uh, the cars are so durable now, by comparison to the way they used to be, that you didn't have to coach your driver to stay at eighty percent until the last hour of the race. You're coaching your you're coaching your driver to drive like they would run a two-hour indycar race a sprint race uh, that has only say three stops uh in two hours of driving to where now you maybe you have 30 35 stops in 24 hours of racing uh whatever the number might actually be on a given race weekend um so it's a completely different mindset than what it once was and then uh And certainly the least amount of time that you spend in the pit lane determines, that. on top of that with an endurance race, uh, determines track position. So if you can be flawless and the car performs and you don't have to make uh, compromise in anything on your stop other than normal routine things that you have to do, uh, you're going to gain more track position. That's what you try to do. So your guys work really hard on on the practicing pit stops, the things they have to do for uh, the length of time you race, which may not be this, some of the same things that you do when you run an IndyCar car for two hours, uh, in terms of service serviceability of the race car. Uh, but for the most part, it rewards uh, uh, efficiency and durability.
0: Let's see going to read one to you and then we're going to close on another mic this comes from john r rogers he says and i'm in full agreement here mike is the best (laughs) fortunate to attend a lot of high level football and basketball games college and pro along with indycar but no one is more fan friendly or generous than mike approachable and provides a level of approach for the whole team at the track totally agree and also as i've uh, nicknamed you uh However long ago, especially uh, due to your now twenty-eight appearances here, you're uh, you're our IndyCar Yoda. So uh, we appreciate you bequeathing us with all kinds of uh, insights, wisdom, and uh, and whatnot. So after John's nice uh, statement here, we're gonna close with your pal and mine, Louise Smith, who you gave a tour of the uh, of the transporters and team at Portland on her birthday. Louise, who's been Kicking cancers behind. Saw a photo that she uh, just posted this week, Mike, uh, with her hair growing back and all the things that you hope, signs that uh, things are going well in her fight against cancer. So, our pal Louise, who you took for a great tour of uh, the transporters, got to meet Jimmy Johnson and Scott Dixon and Erickson and Dario, who she loved. We couldn't get Dario to sing for her birthday, but uh, she says, uh, Mike, Can you please tell us about the Ganassi Extreme E-Team, the pairing of Sarah and Kyle, and the racing series itself? She also says Merry Christmas and hopes to see you again at the Grand Prix of Portland in September.
1: Ah. Well, first of all, um, we're looking forward to being in Portland again. Uh, It's a terrific place, and the fans are outstanding there. The... uh, and maybe it goes back to me being on the West Coast growing up in motor racing because I always loved going to Portland. Uh, totally. Yeah, great, great place. Um, Extreme E is, a, uh, is just starting life. Uh, we race in a weekend from now again for the last race of the season in what's called the Jurassic area, south of England.
0: The Jurassic X uh, Pre, yep.
1: Yeah, that, yeah, that's what it's called um but uh fundamentally it has it, it it's racing it, its message is very very important uh it's about uh, climate change gender equality and electrification those three things so they're, they're covering all those bases and they do a good job of that it's raced uh four times and this will be a fifth time in areas where it's it's proven that uh the climate has changed enough to create uh a need uh, to look at those specific geographical areas. Um, the racing itself is interesting because you run two, six, seven, eight-mile laps uh, when, when your male driver and female driver share or swap at the turn of those two laps to get to a main event. Um, and uh, it uses full electric power quite a bit of power actually. Uh, You have an electronic diff uh, for each axle set. So you have two electronic diffs that each have an engine that run the axles that are controlled by a battery pack. And uh, each axle probably puts out 250 horsepower. It's a 500 horsepower vehicle at full power. Mm. Uh, So it's a real race car. It's, It's a cool series. In terms of the drivers that we have, we have two American drivers two off-road American drivers, we thought that was what we should do, Uh, so Kyle Leduc and Sarah Price uh, are very representative of of, uh, what goes on in in all-terrain racing in the United States, each with a history of growing up around the sport and have moved into racing in the sport. Leduc himself has won over 100 off-road races. He's really special. Sarah started winning on two wheels when she was six years old in the desert on motocross bikes. So, again, very, very talented duo there for us and happy to have them represent us. And then we're very fortunate to have uh, the, the GMC division with the Hummer vehicle uh, to represent them. Uh, so, it's got a great future. It has really hardcore teams in it, well run, well managed. Um, and uh, we're looking forward to racing again Uh, next year. I think our series starts in February in Saudi Arabia next year, so uh, I've attended one race because of the conflicts with uh, and IndyCar, which was in Sardinia uh, three weeks ago, planning to go to England next week for the final race. So, um, yeah, it's a a terrific terrific series.
0: And the 53... PCR slash COVID tests you get to take as well as part of that. <laughs> yeah, trip, so. yeah.
1: And I've been going through, uh, And then this is, I have to, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, this is not in the travel brochure, but you have to have a test before you leave the United States. Um, then when you land, you have to, when you land there, you have to go off site. So after you've cleared immigration, you, you, you get transported to a facility to take another test then you have to be quarantined for 20 quarantined until the test results come back which with the tests they give you there the administration of the test takes about 24 hours before you can actually proceed so then you go down to the south of england from the middle part of the country um and which is a pretty drive i guess uh, but you go down there two hour drive down there and then uh uh, I'm staying on the St. Helena, which is their boat, uh, which is a kind of a cool deal, actually. But you have to have another test to get on the boat. And then 24 hours before you leave the country to come back to the United States, you have to have another test. So in the span of uh, 72, span of 80 hours, you've taken four COVID tests.
0: Wow. <laughs> uh,
1: and that, but that's just the nature of what we do these days, I guess. And yeah. Uh, um, it goes with the territory now, whatever we do, doesn't it? So uh, rules are rules.
0: Well, I'm about to go have someone drill holes in my face. Um, Mr. Hall, appearance number 28, done. Uh, Thank you as always. (laughs) And I'll look forward to, uh, I'm sure, visit number 29 here in the not too distant future.
1: Yeah, well, uh, have a great holiday. You know, we start in January racing, so I hope everybody on this call will watch us race at Daytona. Maybe watch us this next weekend on uh, Fox Sports uh, with Extreme E. Uh, So uh, we're hard at it, which is fun.